Almighty and most holy God, we are gathered in the name of Your Son. We come before You clothed in His robes of righteousness to offer You our worship in union with saints on earth and in the heavens. We cry out before You, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Oh Lord, we pray that today You would fill this place with Your glory. That You would fill our lives and our hearts with Your glory. You are most worthy of praise, most to be honored and acclaimed. We rejoice in all Your saving deeds. We rejoice in the death and resurrection of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all our sins are forgiven. Because He suffered Your wrath on the cross, we know we can go free. We rejoice in the outpoured Holy Spirit who gives us new life, who enables us to bear fruit that brings You glory. We trust You. We hope in You. We worship You alone. O great God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons from all eternity to all eternity. Amen. Father, we ask that You would soak us and drench us with Your mercy this day. Father, You are a kind God, exceedingly gracious, loving us beyond all imaginations. Father, we pray that we would know Your love and Your mercy and Your kindness today as Your Word goes forth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In Mark 10, verse 14, Jesus makes what is perhaps the most important declaration in all of Scripture about our children. As He is laying hands on children to bless them, He says, of such is the kingdom of God. I say this might be the most important declaration in all of Scripture about our children because it really summarizes everything the Bible has to say about the children of God's people. Jesus came into the world to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And here He declares that He is bringing the children of His people into His new kingdom. Jesus loves the children of His people. The children of Christians are Christ's children. They are Christian children. Uh, In fact, in a day like ours, it is worth pointing out that Even children with umbilical cords are loved by Jesus. The Bible has a whole lot to say about children in the womb and certainly a whole lot to say about children outside the womb. The children of Christ's disciples are special objects of His care, His love, His affection, His grace. It is important for Christian children to know what Jesus says about them in the Scripture. It's also important for Christian moms and dads to understand what Jesus says about their children in the Scriptures as well as all the implications that flow out of those declarations. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to give you, I guess you could say, three sermons for the price of one. Now relax, these are going to be many sermons. I'm not going to keep you here all day, uh, much as I might like to. Uh, But I want to speak to each group here, each group that would be uh, brought into this passage, children, moms, and dads. See, if these are kingdom kids Jesus is talking about here, kingdom kids need kingdom moms and kingdom dads. And so I want to address each category of family member, each 
category of kingdom member personally. So kids, I want to start with you. Kids, if you, I know you always pay attention to every word I say, but if you could give me your undivided attention and listen very, very closely. Kids, I want you to understand that in speaking directly to you, uh, there, there is biblical precedent for this. That, that is to say that there are uh, places in the Bible where we find children being directly addressed. Think about that little part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we read this morning. Paul wrote his letter to the whole church in the city of Ephesus. But as Paul is addressing the whole church in the city of Ephesus, in Ephesians 6, Paul speaks straight to the children. He says children, and then he addresses them. And you've really got there a three-verse children's sermon in the middle of a sermon to the whole congregation. And that's exactly the kind of thing I want to do right now. So kids, let me start with a question. Kids, when Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God, what does He mean? What is He saying to you and about you? Kids, do you ever imagine what it would be like to be the son or the daughter of a great king? What it would be like to live in a castle? Well, when Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God, He's really saying, that's what you are. You are a son or a daughter of the king. You are royalty. You're royalty. And the castle you're growing up in is the church. Now, like all castles, that castle has a moat around it. You know what a moat is. It's water that, that surrounds the castle. The castle of the church has a moat around it as well. That moat is baptism. But when you passed through the waters of baptism, you entered into the castle. You entered into the king's house as his son or as his daughter. So, boys, you are princes. Girls, you are princesses. That's what Jesus wants you to know. And because you are a son or a daughter of the king, Jesus now wants you to serve him in all that you do. And in fact, Jesus keeps it very, very simple for you. Jesus really gives you just one rule. Obey your mom and dad. Kids, how simple is that? It couldn't be any simpler. The best thing you can do to make Jesus happy is to obey your mom and dad. In fact, when you obey your mom and dad, you're obeying Jesus. You obey your mom and dad as long as you live in their home. And if you're old enough uh, to look ahead to things that will come uh, in the future, I'll tell you this as well. The best thing you can do to prepare for life after you leave your parents' home is to obey your mom and dad right now. Now, if you look at that passage in Ephesians 6, you see really that the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus says, and he's really building off of it and applying it. Paul there in Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now kids, what do you think he means when he says, in the Lord? Well, he's saying to the children, the Christian children in Ephesus, and he's saying to you as Christian children here in Birmingham today, he's saying you belong to the Lord. The Lord loves you, and you can only love Him because He first loved you. And because you love Him, you want to do what is right, and the right thing for you to do is obey. 
And your obedience is in the Lord because the Lord lives in you. He lives in your heart. And the Lord helps you to obey. And the Lord is pleased when you obey. In fact, kids, did you know that you have been the Lord? You've been in the Lord since even before you were born? Have you ever thought about that? Kids, let me ask you a question. Do you remember the first time you met your parents? Do you remember the first time you met your dad? Okay. Probably not. You know, maybe if your dad was away at war the first several years of your life, and then you were older when you, you know, when, when he came home, then maybe you, you remember the first time you met him. But I would guess none of you can remember the first time you met your earthly father. Your dad's just always been there. He's always been a part of your life. Well, in the same way, I bet most, if not all of you, can't remember the first time you met your heavenly father. Your heavenly Father has always already been there. You love Him because He first loved you. Kids, you need to understand, your parents' goal for you is to grow up as a Christian. It's to grow up as a Christian never knowing a day when you didn't love and trust God. Never remembering a day when God wasn't in your life, when He wasn't present in your life. You know, one of our great heroes in the faith is John Calvin. And John Calvin wrote a catechism just for kids. And in that catechism, the first question that a parent is to ask his child is the parent is to ask the question, are you a Christian? And in Calvin's catechism, he trains the child to say yes. And then the parent is to ask, how do you know? How do you know you're a Christian? And the question is to be answered by the child. The child is to say, because I am baptized. See, because you've been baptized, you know you belong to the Lord. You know God is your Father, Jesus is your Savior, and the Spirit lives in you to help you live for God. And so kids, understand as you grow up, you're going to run into all kinds of temptations, all kinds of pressures. And one thing you need to know is that your worth, your value, is not found in grades. It's not found in sports. Your value is found in Christ Jesus. God loves you. And God loves you on your good days and on your bad days. God loves you when you hit that game-winning home run. And God loves you when you strike out. God loves you when you get an A on the test. And God loves you when you don't do so well. God loves you. You are surrounded by the love of God. You're a kingdom kid. A child of the kingdom. You're royalty. And now what your parents are seeking to do with you is help you learn to live like it. I used that line in the sermon last week. Royal children must have royal manners. And that's really what Jesus is saying in Mark 10 as well. You're a kingdom child. You're to live like a son of the king. Think about what Jesus is doing there in Martin. He not only says of such is the kingdom of God, he also takes the children into his arms and he lays his hands on them to bless them. Well, kids, Jesus lays his hands on you to bless you all the time. He did that at your baptism. Now, a lot of you were baptized by me and you might say, well, Pastor Lusk, you're not Jesus. And that would be very true. I'm not. But Jesus used me as his representative. And so when I laid hands on you and poured that water over you, it was really Jesus who was blessing you and claiming you as his own. 
Jesus uses your parents to bless you. When your parents love you, that's really the love of Jesus. When they teach you, that's really Jesus teaching you. When they discipline you, and I know that discipline is painful, it can hurt, it's supposed to, that's why it's discipline, it's to correct you and to help you grow. But really, that's the love of Jesus coming through your parents to keep you from drifting off into sin, which would be incredibly dangerous for you. And again, know that when you obey your parents, your obedience is in the Lord. You're really obeying the Lord Jesus Himself. You're making Him happy. And remember what Ephesians 6 says. Paul says, this commandment has a promise. God promises good things to kids who obey. And so kids, let that be an encouragement to you. You're in the Lord. Your obedience is in the Lord. You're a son or a daughter of the King. How cool is that, right? But you know what? Kingdom kids need kingdom moms and dads also. And so I want to address parents, too, for just a bit. Let me start here with the moms. Uh, What's it mean to be a kingdom mom? Certainly a kingdom mom is the queen of her domain. Uh, What's it mean to be a kingdom mom? What's it mean to mother kingdom kids? Moms, let me talk to you for just a minute. I think it starts with doing what these moms did here in Mark 10. What did they do? They brought their children to Jesus. That's the best thing a mom can do, is to bring her children to Jesus. That's what you must do. You bring your children to Jesus when you lift them up in prayer. You bring them to Jesus when you bring them to church. You bring them to Jesus when you teach them His Word. You bring them to Jesus when you discipline them in love. Moms, understand, your children are not just your children. They are the Lord's children. They belong to the Lord, ultimately. And so, they're not just your children. They're also your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so, you don't just mother your children in the way we often think about mothering. You're actually discipling your children. That's really what motherhood is. It's a, it's a feminine, motherly form of discipleship. That's what it means to be a kingdom mom. See, certainly we would say that by nature... Your children are children of wrath. But by grace, your children have become children of the kingdom. You are to treat them and raise them accordingly. You're to treat them in such a way that it reinforces that identity. You're to treat them with that kind of dignity. You're to remind them continually of who they are. I have to tell you, as a pastor over the years, I've heard moms talk quite a bit about motherhood and some of the struggles and challenges they have. You go into any church, it's always the moms with little kids who are the most tired, the most worn out, the most frazzled. That's just the way it is. But as a pastor, I've heard a lot of things from moms through the years, and there's there's a few that really stand out. One thing is it's really clear to me that moms everywhere struggle with a great deal of anxiety. And moms, the thing you worry about most of all is your children. Now, you know what to do with your worries. The Bible has a lot to say about worries and anxieties. But just let me remind you here how to deal with your worries about your children. Give you some, some, some words of comfort in the midst of your worries. Remember that Jesus loves your children more than you do. And He's with your children. And He's in your children. And He blesses your children. And He's made promises to and about your children. And certainly that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to your children, but it does mean that Jesus is always present with you. He's on your side and He's 
by your side, and it means that everything that happens is part of His perfect plan for you and your child. And so, mothers, you can do your work as a mother out of faith, not out of fear. Uh, I think dads tend to be prone to underparenting, to negligence. I think moms tend to be prone to overparenting, to kind of hyperparenting. So, moms, I would say, relax. Just take a deep breath and relax. Cast your cares on Jesus because you know He cares for you and for your children. Being a mom is hard work. Maybe the hardest work in the world. And certainly in some seasons it's going to be harder than others. But it should also be fun. There should also be great joy and delight and happiness in it. It's not just laundry and spanking. Certainly you're not going to enjoy everything about being a mom. But if you don't enjoy your kids, if you can't have fun with your children, you need to ask why. You need to ask your husband why. Your children are blessed by Jesus and He intends for them to be a blessing to you. Not just a burden, not just a a source of of anxiety. And so moms, if you find you just can't enjoy your kids, it might just mean you're going through a really hard season of life that's going to pass soon. But it could also mean there's something deeper that's wrong that needs to be dealt with. And you need to figure that out if you're not enjoying your children. Moms, I know you also tend to struggle with playing the comparison game. Uh, I, I hear this a lot as well. Please understand, parenting is not a competitive sport. And treating it like one, you know, getting into the so-called mommy wars, even a Christianized version of the mommy wars will only lead to anger and frustration and disappointment. You know, it's like getting on a hamster wheel and you just run and run and run and you never get anywhere and it's exhausting. Comparing and contrasting your kids with others will make you judgmental and envious towards other families, which then in turn creates division in the body of Christ. And of course, that creates all kinds of problems in itself. It also tends to make you hypercritical and impatient with your own kids when you're constantly comparing and contrasting with other families. Again, dads can do this too, but I think moms tend to be much more prone to it. Comparisons of this sort always lead to discontentment, and discontentment leads us to mistreat those around us and closest to us. We tend to be hardest on those closest to us. And those closest to us tend to bear the brunt of all of our discontentedness. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Four Loves, uh, where he talks about the bad manners of parents towards their children. There are a lot of parents who treat their children worse than they would treat anyone else. They would never yell at a stranger, but they continually yell at their kids. They would encourage a friend who's having a bad day, but when their child's having a bad day, they just criticize. They would forgive an accident committed by someone else, but when their own child commits an accident, they lash out. This just ought not to be. Moms, you need to remember the circumstances of your family are unique and they are ordained by God. Your children's personalities and struggles and abilities are all part of God's plan. And because God makes everyone's situation unique, it is useless. It's worse than useless. To contrast advantages or hardships, blessings or aggravations. 
It just gets you nowhere. Your life situation is exactly what God wants it to be. And what God wants from you is for you to live faithfully within that situation. And moms, I think that's a lot easier to do if you remember your goal in motherhood. What is it all about? Go back to Mark chapter 10. Remember, your children belong to Jesus and to His kingdom. You are not raising your children to fulfill your dream. You are raising your children to fulfill Jesus' kingdom dream. Your dreams aren't going to come true anyway. Jesus' kingdom dream will come true, so you might as well get on board with that. It's Jesus' expectations that must be determinative. So moms, your goal is not to raise the most athletic or academic or artistic children. Yes, cultivate your children's gifts. Do that. But recognize that's not the main goal. Your main goal is to raise faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom. Mothers, you want to raise children who will glorify their God and Savior. You want to raise children who will love God and love people. Now moms, I know your work is tremendously undervalued, especially in our culture. Uh, your work is very undervalued and underappreciated. But you need to know, moms, that Jesus values your work. And He has invested the office of mother with tremendous power. And we've got a wonderful parable of the power of motherhood uh, and the power of a mother's love in Harry Potter. That's what the Harry Potter series is really all about, is the love of mothers for their children. And what ultimately defeats Voldemort is the love that mothers have for their children. Willie Potter's love for Harry, yes, but also Narcissa Malfoy's love for her son, and even Molly Weasley's love for her children. Through their sacrificial love, they defeat the Dark Lord Voldemort. Okay. Moms, you have to see yourself in a spiritual battle, engaged with the power of, powers of darkness every day, and through your sacrificial love, you are dealing Voldemort, you're dealing Satan, a lethal blow. Whatever curses he's sending out at you and your family, rebound against him when you love your children sacrificially. There is incredible power in a mother's love. There's that old saying, that old proverb, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Or another saying much like it, there is more power in a mother's hand than a king's scepter. And so mothers, I ask you, how are you wielding your power? Are you wielding your power in faith to shape children who will glorify God and live out their status as members of His kingdom? Yeah, again, I know motherhood means lots of lowly, difficult jobs. It means being unappreciated and it means not always being thank or praise the way that you ought to be. But I want you to know something. Later on in Mark 10, it's almost like you can just work out this thread in Mark's Gospel. Later on in Mark 10, Jesus shows that the pathway of humble service is actually the pathway to true greatness. It's very interesting. Later on in Mark 10, there are two brothers, James and John, who come to Jesus and they ask if they can have the best seats in His kingdom when Jesus comes into His glory. We're going to talk about that passage more when we actually get there. There's a lot of interesting things going on. But here you've got these young men who want glory for themselves. And Jesus has to rebuke them and He has to teach them that true greatness is found in serving. You get glory not through going up, but through going down. And Jesus shows that the true shape of His kingdom is cruciform. But what's interesting is this. 
In Matthew's account of the same story, it's actually their mother. It's the mother of James and John who comes and asks if her sons can have the most glorious positions in the kingdom. Moms, don't be like that. Don't seek glory for your children. She has to be rebuked. Don't train your children to seek glory for themselves. Instead, seek glory for God through your children. And know that true glory is found, true glory is revealed when we serve cheerfully. Moms, true glory will come when you serve cheerfully and you train your children to do the same. Mothers, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient each day. It's sufficient each hour. It's sufficient each moment. God's grace is sufficient to enable you to mother out of wisdom and not out of emotion. To be consistent and constant in your faithfulness each day so you can bless your children with love only a mother can do. That's what it means to be a kingdom mother. But now we talk about fathers. And of course, I've got to speak to fathers. I'm speaking to myself as well as I do this. But what does it mean to be a kingdom dad? What does it mean to father kingdom kids? It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's instructions to the father come in the midst of a section that has to do really with living a spirit-filled life. Starting back in chapter 5, verse 18, uh, Paul talks about living the spirit-filled life. And so we can say a kingdom dad is a spirit-filled dad. The spirit flows out from him to his family. How does that happen? It's also We'll talk about that in a minute. It's also interesting that in Ephesians 6, Paul addresses only fathers. He tells children to obey their moms and their dads, but then he just gives his instructions only to fathers when it comes to parenting. Now, why is that? Well, he's certainly not ignoring the mother's role. In fact, he's got much to say about that elsewhere. The Scripture as a whole certainly does. But he addresses fathers in Ephesians 6 because the father is understood to be the head of his household. And he is responsible not only for his own role in raising his children, he's also responsible to make sure his wife plays her role. He is responsible to set the spiritual direction of the home. The spiritual tempo and culture of the home are his responsibility. In other words, while every individual in the household is accountable to God individually, the father is also accountable for the household as a whole. And God reckons us not only as individuals, but also as members of households. And the father is ordinarily the captain of that ship, so to speak. The captain of the ship that is his household. This is also why in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul is giving qualifications for leaders in the church, he says a man, a man must have obedient and faithful children. In other words, a man is responsible for the state of his household. And we can judge a man's fitness for office in the church by looking at the state of his household. This is why in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua can stand up and speak on behalf of his whole household, his whole family. And he can say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You might say, well, Joshua, why not just let each member of your family make up his own mind? Well, no. Joshua is the head of his household. He's going to speak for his family. He has the authority and the right to do that. A father is to represent 
God the Father to His children. That's what it means to be a father. You're called to be a representative of God the Father. In your love, in your discipline, in your teaching, in your example, you are to be, dads, an icon of the Heavenly Father. And, and, and fathers, if you are faithful in that, we should expect that to bear fruit in the lives of your children. Because children flourish under faithful fathers. The problem we have is we live in a culture of fatherlessness. Fathers are nowhere to be found. Fathers are absent. Good models of fatherhood are lacking. You've got so many men now who've grown up without a father to show them how it's done. Fatherhood is lost in earth. See, fathers are cornerstones. You build family and you build culture around fathers. And when fathers go missing, family and culture fall apart. The whole world begins to disintegrate. That's what's happening all around us. In the UK, a child is more likely to have a smartphone than a father. Think of that. In the US, the numbers aren't really uh, much different. I haven't seen that particular statistic, but I have seen one that says children in America today are more likely to have a pet in the home than a father. And what our society has done is said, oh, well, in place of these missing fathers, we'll just set up government programs. But the reality is government programs cannot replace fathers. Without fathers, actually what you get is a paternalistic state to provide for women and children and a police state to control these undisciplined, unattached men. But as we're starting to see now, after several decades of this, it is a complete disaster. Status substitutes for dad do not work. Man, I want you to think with me about the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You probably know the story. You have the youngest son there who asks his father, in, a, in essence wishing his father dead, he asks his father for his inheritance early. And then he goes out and he wastes it on riotous living. Well, things finally get so bad, he comes to his senses and he hopes that perhaps his father will take him in as a hired servant. But actually, as he's on his way home, this prodigal son is discovered by his father. His father's been out searching for him and looking for him. And when his father finds his son, when the father finds this son, he welcomes him back into the family. He throws a party and he slaughters the fatted calf and he clothes them and puts a ring on his finger. And then the other brother gets upset about this, how uh, his prodigal brother is getting so much attention. When he gets upset and he goes outside the party, what does the father do? He goes and seeks him out and tries to bring the self-righteous brother back into the party as well. It is a picture of provision, of generosity, and of grace all coming through the Father, flowing through the Father to the sons. Now do this. Try retelling that story without the Father. Take the Father out and what are you left with? Take the Father out just as He's been taken out of so many American homes. Take the father out of the story, just as fathers have been taken out of the stories of so many kids in our day. Make it a fatherless story, and what do you have? The story is gutted. What was a gospel story really just becomes a nightmare. Just the kind of nightmare you see playing itself out in our cities today. With no father in this story, there's no provision for either son. 
When one son goes headlong into a life of lawlessness, there's no man out looking for him, searching for him. There's no man ready to welcome him home when he comes to his senses. No man to provide a party with a fatted calf for him. No father to reconcile the sons who have been alienated from one another to bring peace. There's no good news in the story without the father. The father is the glue who holds the story together, who makes it a gospel story. Fathers, that's what fatherhood is all about. You are to be an icon of the Gospel, a living embodiment of the Gospel to your children in the home. Your job, fathers, is to make the story of your children's lives a Gospel story. A story of grace, of generosity, of provision. A story of reconciliation. A story of mercy. And the way you do that is by working hard, by loving, by forgiving, by seeking out your kids when you need to seek them out, celebrating them when you can celebrate with them. See, our culture is disintegrating because fathers, fathers like this are nowhere to be found. We need to understand, really, the culture wars, you know, there's a lot of talk about the culture wars these days. The culture wars are primarily debates about how to deal with missing men, missing fathers. The culture wars and different manifestations like certain varieties of feminism and whatnot, these are all just ways of trying to deal with failed men all around us. If you look at places like you know, what's happened in Ferguson, Missouri, or in Baltimore. Sure, you can, you can say that there's a racial component to this and there's a class component to this. I'm not screening those things out. They're certainly there. But the main issue is this. There are no fathers around. No real fathers. Ferguson just shows you. It's just this wide display, this big display of what fatherlessness does. When fathers go missing... This is what happens. This is the effect. The culture wars are all about fatherhood. Now you could say, oh, but I, I haven't abandoned my family. I'm, I'm, I'm with my family. I live in the home and take care and provide and all of that. But fathers, you need to understand there are, there's more than one kind of fatherlessness. Yeah, there's that father who begets a child and then abandons it. Okay, that's, that's terrible. But there's a, there's, there are other kinds of fatherlessness including fathers who are present in body in the home, but absent in heart and spirit from the home. And that kind of fatherlessness plagues even the best of churches. What does it mean for a father to be all there, to really be a father in his home? Well, again, look at the directions that Paul gives to fathers in Ephesians 6. Paul in Ephesians 6 says fathers are not to exasperate their children. Now, why would Paul command that? I think that we have to say God typically commands to our weaknesses. That's why in the previous chapter in Ephesians 5, Paul commands husbands to love, and then he commands wives to respect. And he does that precisely because husbands struggle with love and wives struggle with respect. And so God commands to our weaknesses. But what then do fathers struggle with? Fathers struggle with exasperating their children. Now, why do fathers exasperate their children? I think it's primarily because we allow our children to exasperate us. Right? Instead of being gracious and patient and loving, instead of being the kind of father you find in Luke 15, we're impatient, we're lacking in mercy, lacking in grace. 
That's the negative. Don't exasperate your children. What does Paul say is the positive? Paul says fathers are to bring their children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Get this, the training and admonition fathers are to give is to be anchored to the Lord. There's that phrase again, in the Lord or of the Lord. This training and admonition is anchored to the Lord. It's in the Lord. Just as children are to obey in the Lord, fathers are to train in the Lord. And dads, this is what keeps your training of your children from being mere moralism. This is what makes it different from the kind of instruction that non-Christian fathers might give to their sons. They might say a lot of the same things that we would say in terms of what's right and wrong and what you should do and not do. But they can't give it this foundation. The foundation is the Gospel. The kind of training and admonition we do is Gospel-centered. It's anchored to the Lord, to the Lord's grace. Theologians put it this way. They say the imperatives are grounded in the indicatives. That is to say the imperatives, the commands flow out of the indicative. They flow out of what God has declared to be true of you and your children. So we don't just give commands. We give commands in the Lord. Commands that are grounded in the Gospel. The instruction we give to our children flows out of the Gospel. And we're to show them how it flows out of the Gospel. So we don't call our children to obey us in the flesh, but rather in the power of the Spirit who indwells them. And as we teach them how to live, we teach them how to live as Christians. And because they're Christians. So for example, we don't just say forgive your sibling. We say forgive as Christ has forgiven you. That's the model. That's, that's, the, that, that, that's the blueprint. When we teach them to pray, we remind them that when they are praying, they're praying to their Heavenly Father. They're speaking to the God who created them and has redeemed them. They're communing with God in prayer. That's their right and their privilege as children of God. The Gospel is the foundation on which we build. So fathers, we must trust. We must trust God's promises and God's declarations about our children. In other words, just as I said, mothers must mother by faith, so fathers must father by faith. That means reminding yourself and your children continually of all God has done and all God has promised. Reminding your children of their covenantal identity, who they are in Christ. Fathers, in faith, you must discipline your children. You are to be the chief disciplinarian in your home. You can't just leave that to your wife. One of the chief ways you image the Heavenly Father as an earthly father is by loving and consistent discipline. A father who refuses to discipline his kids is basically saying to your kids, I don't care whether you go to heaven or hell. I don't care how your life turns out. But see, that doesn't tell the truth about God the Father. A dad whose discipline is overly harsh or inconsistent or non-existent is also lying about God the Father. Know that your discipline is one of the chief ways that you as an earthly father image the heavenly Father. And when you lovingly and consistently discipline your children, you are blessing your children and that blessing rebounds to you in the long run. Spanking a child in love while he's young can be a way of paying it forward. And your future self will thank you. Because down the road, you'll get to enjoy the fruits of your fatherly labors when you have grown children who are pleasant and enjoyable to be with because they're self-controlled and they're polite and they're service-oriented because you made them that way. You bent them in that direction by your teaching and by your discipline. And fathers, perhaps most importantly, you must pray. 
A kingdom father will be a praying father. True fathers draw strength from the heavenly father. It is prayer that ties everything together, that ties together your discipline and your teaching and your example and makes them all effective. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the righteous man is the man who lives for the next generation. And that's true, but I'll sharpen and bring it to a point. The righteous man is the man who prays for the next generation. Fathers, you have tremendous power and authority. The office of Father, and that's what it is, that's how you need to think of it, is an office that God has entrusted to you. The office of Father is one of power and authority. How do you use the power and authority entrusted to you? Do you use your power to serve and to bless? Or to hurt and to exasperate? What kind of family culture are you using your power to create? Are you a true kingdom father whose fatherhood is exercised in submission to the king for the good of those who are under your care? Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can stand adversity. If you really want to test a man's character, give him power. Fathers, you have been given power is a test of your character, how you use it. Will you be like the Pharisees, binding burdens on your kids they can't carry, exasperating them? Will you be like that father in Luke 15 who cares for his children, who is generous and merciful? Are you going to exasperate your children through negligence or through harshness? Or are you going to use your office and your power to serve and to bless? To act sacrificially on behalf of women and children is the epitome of true manhood. To act sacrificially on behalf of women and children is the epitome of kingdom fatherhood. To take responsibility, to provide, to pray, to show grace, to share wisdom. These are the marks of true fatherhood. And know, dads, when you act sacrificially in the home, you show your children a glimpse of the kind of father they have in heaven. The kind of father you are in the home should show them the kind of father they have in heaven. And in this way, you imprint not only your own character and convictions upon your children, you imprint the character and convictions of Christ Himself upon your children for their eternal life. Let's pray and ask that God would make it so. Father, we do thank You for Your covenant, Your covenant promises to families, to households. Father, I pray that this church would be full of kingdom families who believe the Gospel, who trust in Christ Jesus alone, and who live in obedience and faithfulness to Him in every area of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let's stand together for prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are bold to come before You with our prayers and petitions because we know that Jesus Christ is our great High Priest who has passed through the heavens and because Your Spirit intercedes for us and with us. Help us to pray by Your Spirit. Hear our prayers for the sake of Your Son, and use our prayers to accomplish Your perfect will. Father, we ask You to prosper and defend Your church, the body and bride of Christ, that she would be found faithful at the coming of her Lord. Reform her worship. Sanctify her ministers. Heal her divisions. Purge her of heresy and error. 
convert and confound her oppressors, make her fruitful in ministry and mission, cultivate faithfulness and holiness within this congregation, and grant that all Christians would embody your love in worship, fellowship, and service so that we might see your kingdom expanded in the nation's disciple. Especially bless all CREC churches in the U.S. and around the world and prosper the work of through mission and all those laboring in evangelism, church planting, and Bible translation. Almighty God, we thank You that You have given the nations to Your Son as His inheritance and that You have put everything in subjection under His feet. Fill the kings of the earth with the fear of the Lord that they might receive Your blessing and not suffer Your wrath. Provide for the millions who have been displaced or forced to flee their homes and sustain Your people living under oppressive governments. Bring an end to war and bloodshed and strengthen Your church in the face of affliction so that we might witness boldly to the risen and reigning Christ. Father, have mercy upon our own nation. Pour out Your Spirit on those to whom You have given authority in our land. Forgive us when we have arrogantly called good evil and evil good. And grant us repentance to turn from our rebellion and return to You. Rid us of all injustice and unrighteousness especially the killing of unborn children and the oppression of the poor and needy. Deliver us from the rule of ungodly magistrates and judges. Purify Your church in our land so that our society would be renewed and reformed. God of all comfort, we bring before You all who are afflicted and oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body and mind. Uphold and sustain all expectant mothers. Strengthen all parents to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. Watch over and grant healing to Wyatt Rickles, Sarah Claudia, Bethany Laughlin, Ashley Hamblin, Mike Passarilla, Brad Steffler, Mary Jo Mosley's dad, all those battling cancer, especially Caleb Hanby, Suzanne Shelton, Joy Ann Perry, Vicki Walker, Sylvia Douglas, Martha Godwin, Ann Bullard, Amy Sanders, and Patsy Sadler. Look with mercy upon our aging parents and grandparents and all to whom death draws near, especially Sally Smith and her family. Comfort all who are grieving tragedy or loss, especially the Woods family and the passing of Philip's mother, and the friends and family of Jacoria Ray, friend of the Deshokus who was murdered last week. Give your special mercy and peace to the friends of the Fulmers and the friends of the Maddoxes, both of whom have an unborn child with a fatal disorder. Lord, grant us humility to submit to your sovereign will and wise providence. Refine us through our afflictions and help us always to trust that you are working all things together for your glory and our good. Teach us contentment in every situation and the joy that comes when we lay down our lives for one another. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray together as our Savior has taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.